Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you. You can open it to page 905. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you credit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Before we begin the message, let's start with a prayer. Let your gospel, O Lord, come unto us in word and in power and in much assurance and in the Holy Spirit that we may be guided into all truth and strengthened unto all obedience and enduring of your will with joyfulness, that abounding in the work of the faith and the labor of love and the patience of hope, we may finally be, part, made, be made partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Good morning. We are on the final chapter of our series in the first letter to the Corinthians. It's been, um, I think, over a year now. And we have gone chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And what we've seen the Holy Spirit do in our church is that as we have gone verse by verse, and even sometimes word by word, God changing us, sanctifying us, and making us more like Him. Hearing and listening to the Word changes us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this is what we are doing in faithful obedience, and I praise God for that. And so after the summit, of chapter 15 on the resurrection we are now on chapter 16 and this is the culmination and crowning chapter of first corinthians and so paul teaches the corinthians on the resurrection and he goes directly into the collection and so apparently the corinthians were wondering about how money should be collected this was a collection that paul was gathering for the poor saints in jerusalem He was collecting it from all the churches in Asia Minor. And so you can imagine this would amount to be a considerable sum. The giving of and collecting of offerings in the church has had its share of cynicism in our culture today. It's not just the nonprofits that I talked about last week, but cynicism extends to churches and even parachurch ministries as well. For many have been found guilty of misuse, mismanagement, and corruption, and the list goes on. You may have even seen some televangelists giving giving a bad name, where they ask you to give $2,222 for you to receive two two times the blessing. I thought that was good. I, I, I would have made a decent televangelist. But then, you know, hell. But um, (laughs) so 
but I sincerely believe these hucksters will receive their due. But because of these things, many believers are reluctant or do not contribute to the work of the church. And I believe this is in grievous error, for the Bible commands us to give. It's an integral part of us being good stewards of our resources for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, you are listening to part two of this sermon series. Part one was last week. And in part one, we went over the two principles on giving. Number one being that the collection was for the saints. The church ought to take care of the needs of its clergy and its poor. This principal concept in the Bible was shown even in the Old Testament. And we're going to get a little bit into that more today. And number two, that principle was that the collection was to happen on Sundays when the church gathered. The Corinthians are instructed to set aside the offering every Sunday at their gatherings. This is why we also ought to take the offering times in a reverent and somber manner. You don't just throw pocket change or whatever is left over from your spending sprees on Amazon at the end of the month into the basket. It's in systematic fashion we are to set aside the first offerings on a regular basis. This is basic in stewardship. Because stewardship didn't begin with 1 Corinthians 16. It began with creation. In Psalm 24, 1, it says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God is the creator of all things and he is the owner of all things. That means what we own, we own as stewards of the one who has graciously endowed us with these gifts. All the money, all the ability, and even the time to connect these two things were given to you by God. Stewardship begins with the understanding that God owns everything. This means he has given them to us for a time and he expects us to manage them in a way that will honor and glorify him. And he will hold us to account when he returns. Jesus taught this in the parable of the talents. He would give each one of his servants a measure of talent. And when he returned, he would hold to account each servant. A steward in the ancient world didn't own the house that he lived in. Rather, he was a hired hand that managed the affairs of the house. He would manage the property, making sure the lawn was watered, the fridge was stocked, the table was set, etc. And this kind of stewarding began then in the Bible with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were given dominion over the world, but they weren't given ownership of it. They were set in the garden to maintain it, cultivate it, and not abuse it or mismanage it and make sure its goods didn't go spoiled or wasted. And today, I'd like to go over what we ought to give. We talked about how we ought to give last week, and today we're going to go over a little bit about what we ought to give. In our church during the offering times, we have across on our screens tithes and offerings. And more specifically, his tithes, our offerings. What does this mean? Uh, there are quite a few types 
of offerings laid out in the Bible. But what I meant to do is separate our offering into two types. One is a tithe and the other is an offering. But it's really just one thing, and I'll get into that. It's really just one thing. And now this explanation may be complex. I'm going to get into this explanation. It may be a little complex, and I'll be weaving in and out of concepts and principles and even patterns that I see in the Bible. But because I don't want to confuse anybody, I want to give you the ending of the story first, okay? Here is the ultimate principle that after all that will be said today, that you should take away. God is our treasure, and we as believers are to give generously and freely. God is our treasure, and then we as believers are to give generously and freely. First, the tithe. Honestly, this can be a sermon series in itself, but let me lay out some key understandings of the tithe. The first time we see the tithe isn't in the time of Moses, but from Abraham. In Genesis chapter 14, Abraham, and at that time he was Abram, returns victorious from a battle, and then he meets Melchizedek. Melchizedek meaning king of righteousness or justice, and Melchizedek was the king of Salem. Salem meaning peace. So here is this king of righteousness over peace that meets Abram. And the text adds in Genesis 14 that he was the priest of God most high. Melchizedek brings out bread and wine and then blesses Abram. And then Abram in turn gives him a tithe. Now, this would be confusing if you just had the passage by itself, except we have Hebrews chapter 7, which gives us a lengthy explanation of Melchizedek. You see, Melchizedek turns out to be a type of Christ. He is a type that points to Christ. By type, I mean that we are to understand that Melchizedek is a typology not an allegory. An allegory pays no attention to the original context, but typology has everything to do with the original context. So the key difference between typology and allegory is that typology takes seriously the context from which it is drawn. So inferentially, we can see that because Melchizedek resembles Christ typologically, Melchizedek, having no beginning or end, for Moses never wrote about his birth or death, Christ then, in that same typology, has no beginning or end. And we see this in Hebrews 7.3. And in the verse before, it's noted again that Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all he had. Why? Why? Because Abram recognized the greatness of Melchizedek. The tithe is later commanded in the law to be collected and given to the Levites. Because without this command, the people wouldn't have known to give tithes to the Levites. But before that command is given, there was no command needed for Melchizedek to collect a tithe because it was clear who was greater. Now, I'm going to put all this together, but I needed to lay down this theological framework. Now, when you don't 
tithe. When people didn't tithe in the time of Malachi, how did God respond? And this is a very famous passage that many people may have heard growing up. I'm going to do a little bit of exposition here. But when people didn't tithe in the time of the prophet of Malachi, did God go, why aren't you paying tithes to your priests? Don't, don't, you don't want them to go hungry, do you? Pay your priests. Is that what God said when people weren't paying the tithes? That's not what God said. In Malachi 3, 8 to 10, this is what God says. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, some will argue that there, the principle of the tithe is no longer in effect, because, in effect because it's from the Mosaic tradition and we are no longer under that law. While it is true that we are no longer under the Mosaic covenant and we are now under the new covenant in Christ, I want to give two quick rebuttals to this argumentation. If need be, we can come back and revisit this another time to go over a longer explanation on tithing. But here are my two quick rebuttals. Number one, the principle of tithing was clearly shown to us before the Mosaic Covenant. And number two, just because it was in the Mosaic writings, it doesn't mean it's null and void post-Christ. You know what's also in the Mosaic Covenant? is you shall not murder. And just because it's in the Mosaic Covenant doesn't mean we can murder now. Obviously not. So the ceremonial laws of sacrifice and food were clearly fulfilled in Christ, but there is nowhere that I see in the Bible that the laws and principles for giving being abrogated. And this means if the tithe principle is still in effect, we are robbing God when we don't tithe. Malachi's teaching shows us that when we don't tithe, we are not merely failing to pay the pastor or something like that. We are robbing God himself. And so God even challenges his people to be faithful in their giving and that his promise would be that he would open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And tithe is something that we learn is owed to God. But he, we see even here that God promises an outpouring of blessing on those who would tithe faithfully. Jesus mentioned the tithe when he was talking about the Pharisees, that they were paying attention to something that they should do. Tithe is something that they should do, but without neglecting the weightier matters of justice and the poor. R.C. Sproul, in his writings, would call the tithe the center of the biblical concept of stewardship the center of the biblical concept of stewardship. And I think that's right. I think there's a beauty and wisdom in the concept of tithing. The beauty is that it would eliminate any class warfare and reduce covetousness and envy. The tithe prevented unequal taxes on one group of people over another. You see, when this happens, when, there's, when there are things like progressive taxing, when this happens, like it's happening now with 
your quote-unquote uh, pay your fair share slogan, we see what happens as a result is that economics becomes politicized. And when that happens, interest groups form, and now it's not about justice anymore, it's about power groups. But in Israel, everyone giving the same percentage meant that they weren't necessarily giving the same amount, and yet because it was the same percentage, they would equally be considered faithful. Both the $30,000 wage earner giving $3,000 and the $300,000 wage earner giving $30,000 would be considered faithful in God's eyes. The richer pays far more money, but it is the same percentage of their income. God instituted the tithe, giving it to the Levites so they could take charge of the spiritual and educational responsibilities of the nation. And if that latter part about education is surprising to you, remember that every major institution, every major educational institution that started in the beginning of this country, starting with Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Dartmouth, were by religious groups. And by religious groups, I mean Christians. And by Christians, I mean Presbyterians. And they were formed to raise ministers and missionaries. I'm going to read you Harvard's rules and precepts that were adopted in 1646. It included these following essentials. Harvard's rules and precepts adopted in 1646. Everyone shall consider the main end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Seeing the Lord giveth wisdom, everyone shall seriously by prayer in secret seek wisdom of him. Everyone shall so exercise himself, reading the scriptures twice a day, that they be ready to give an account of their proficiency therein, both in theoretical observations of languages and logic, and in practical and spiritual truths. I suppose uh, they're not following this so much today, but even if Harvard no longer associates itself with the church, even under the new covenant in Christ, Tithes and offerings continue to support the work of building people up in the truth of God and reaching sinners through the gospel. Christ works through his churches to grow his kingdom. You know, we went to a Ligonier conference last year. Was it this year? It was this year. Earlier this year, and uh, the president of the ministry would go up on stage, and he would humbly remind the attendees um, that what the founder said, when donating to the ministry. If we have $100 to work with in this ministry, we are limited by that dollar amount. We can waste that money and do $10 of actual work, but even if we are expert managers and scrupulous stewards, we cannot do $110 of ministry. And so Christian ministry depends on Christian giving. That giving always and everywhere limits the work of ministry. And so we, I thought that was such a humble way of presenting um, the giving portion of Christians. I'm going to do a side note here. There might be some that know the Old Testament enough to know that there were actually multiple tithes. And so there's the first tithe, the second tithe, the third tithe. And if you add it up, it would estimate to be maybe like 23 to 27%. So then if you're saying, okay, we should give tithes, do we give as it's outlined in the Mosaic texts? How do we even categorize that? Or 
do we give then like Abraham did and give 10% flat? And to this, I want to respond this way. Friends, if you aren't tithing at all, start with just 10%. People who rail against the tithe being a biblical principle, I find, rarely give at all. Then I would ask then, we are commanded specifically to set aside a set-aside offering, then what's that percentage going to be? Because what percentage would you start with? Five? Seven? Twenty? And I would ask, how'd you come up with that number? And then you may ask, or some people may ask, what if you don't give 10%? Are you in sin? First, I think you can be still in sin if you do give 10%. There is legalism that people will be given into thinking that they are just good and have fulfilled all the principles of giving just because they give 10%. That is incomplete and that is legalism. If you can't, however, if you can't even apportion or set aside a proportion of your income, then yes, I believe you can be in sin through the mismanagement of your funds due to the frivolous spending and whatnot. If this is the case, if this is the case, I really sincerely want to share with you, you ought to get financial help. People get counseling for all sorts of things now. Why would your finances be excluded? I also believe that you could also be someone in need. And if that's the case, then you come to the church for help. Getting hung up on the 10% when you can't put food in your belly or feed your kids is not the spirit of the principle of tithing. And I'm using specific words on purpose because we're going to get back to that. But secondly, I just want to first, well, I want to get to this first, which is a second point. There is a kind of offering that I've stated before, and that's the free will offering. This is where Proverbs 3, 9 to 10 comes into play. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, the principle, just like the tithe, is still in, in effect. You hoard, you steal. You give, you'll be filled to overflow. A few years ago, it's already been a few years now, in our Exodus sermon series, we went over in detail about the free will offering. When the Lord wanted to build the tabernacle in Exodus 25, he would say, speak to the people of Israel, for they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. This is not a tithe, it's a free will offering. And then in Exodus 35, it says this, And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its servants, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart brought brooches, brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. Now that I've said this, now that I've set this up, I think this is the ultimate pattern for giving. I think the tithe is a principle, not a pattern. Because is the pattern really that if you don't give exactly 10%, you are in sin? I'm not sure how, if any one of you here really thought that, first of all, but 
What if you gave 9.8% one week? Do you owe back taxes? How would you even calculate that? And from when do you start paying back taxes, right? By principle, what I mean is that 10% is what we see in the Bible, and it then grows into understandings of first fruits and other free will offerings. By principle, I mean that I've never seen an example of giving that's less than 10% in the Bible. When Zacchaeus spent time with Jesus, he gave 50% of all that he had to the poor, and if he defrauded anybody, he would restore it by 400%. By principle, I mean that there is great wisdom if we study it. By pattern, however, this is what I mean. By pattern, I mean this is what exactly we must do. And this is the pattern. When we give, we ought to give as our hearts move us. Don't you see, when the people of God gave, they were giving knowing that God had invited them to participate in the building of the tabernacle. This is the stuff that excited them. It propelled them forward. Until the temple would be built, this would be God's resting place here on earth with his people. And people were excited to participate in that. And now in Christ, we the church, we're God's holy temple. Because if you have an abundance, it's so that you could give in abundance. And here's God's promise that if you give in abundance, you will also have in abundance. In 2 Corinthians, so the letter after that, Paul is going to clarify on giving. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 8, Paul says this, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I'm going to come back to this again. So I keep on saying I'm going to come back. But I'm coming back and then going and then coming back. But let's get to the second verse that was read today. And we're going to go to that latter portion. And we're going to lay out some other principles that were given. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Here's the third principle, continuing on from last week. This is the third principle we find. No excessive emotional appeals. No excessive emotional appeals. There will be no collecting when I come. People today would look at this, maybe church leaders would look at this, or marketers would look at this, and they might say, what a missed opportunity. Think of how much more people would give if they saw the great apostle himself. But Paul would not give one inch to being provoked by emotional appeals of the time. In today's world, you'll see someone maybe come up and show you some pictures of where this money will go, what it will do. There's keyboard music playing that just gets you right in there, that kind of thing. But Paul is foregoing any chance of this happening. Giving should be systematic, and it should be week by week. Giving is to be faithful, not simply emotional. Giving should be in the mundane, regular flow of life, not some hoopla designed to manipulate people into giving. It should be measured, weighed, prayed over, prepared in advance, not given because you've got a tearjerker of a testimony one week. 
That's not the faithfulness God wants his people to be engaged in. There's an early writing that the apostles are attributed to. It's called the Didache, the Didache of the Apostles. And in it it says, you know this saying, this is what it says, you know this saying, let the money sweat in your hand before you give it. Let the money sweat in your hand before you give it. It shouldn't be used frivolously. It shouldn't be given frivolously. But every time we give, we give with a somber, serious, reverent heart. That's what it's talking about. And we don't just give willy-nilly. We give it measured, tempered, prayed over, prepared in advance, and all these things. So even from the beginning, because Didache is uh, dated even perhaps around this time, too, when the letter was written. Even from the beginning, people in the church, they took giving very seriously. And don't get me wrong. There may be times where we may have an immediate need that must be filled, and people, somebody may come to the church with precisely this need because it's acute and immediate. But that's not the standard way of giving. Paul wanted no emotional appeal, no guilt trip, no struggle for people to pay up, in a sense, no gimmicks. You don't need a sermon series to give once a year. There's no gimmicks. You need to have a regular and faithful life of giving. That's principle three. I'm going to go into the fourth principle that we find in this passage. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Here's the fourth principle we find in this passage. The collection must be protected. The collection must be protected. Now Paul says that once they've collected the money and Paul arrives, he's going to put that money in the hands of people that they accredit, which means they approve. Paul takes extra care to make sure that the money is in trustworthy hands. The people carrying the money would have had letters showing that the church in Corinth approved these people. I mean, it should be obvious by now that when money gets into the hands of evil and corrupt individuals, the church gets damaged, its witness hindered, and the money itself won't get to where it's needed. This is why we must take tremendous care on who is an elder of our church. Tremendous care. Pastors and elders must be godly men who fear God and will not be given into greed for money. And I praise God that our church has godly elders that fear God and they aren't greedy for money. You see, in the early church, we see that whenever people would take money as an offering, who did they lay it in front of? Who did they lay it at the feet of? It was the apostles. They didn't give it to the bankers or people with some kind of financial background. They didn't give it to businessmen. And I find it extremely troubling when I hear elders say that they would know how to handle a church well because they are a good businessman. There's some CEO or there's some good administrator of some organization. These are not qualifications to be an elder. Even when the apostles got busy because the church was growing so rapidly, did they say in Acts 6, hey, we have to handle the word and prayer, so we need to find guys with degrees to be deacons. 
with financial degrees. Did they say that? Even to wait on tables, because that's what deacon means. Deacon means a waiter of tables. Even to wait on tables, the apostles would tell them, pick out among you, from among you, seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. The primary qualification for anyone to be an officer of the church is to be godly. We must never confuse the qualifications of the officers in the church with secular and worldly standards. Some might interject after hearing this. I know of an elder, and all he did was pray, and he mismanaged funds. What do you say to that? And I'll ask, was he godly? Was he full of the Spirit and of wisdom? Then I would be hard-pressed to believe someone like that would continually mishandle the funds of the church. Because was he alone? Why is it only him that mismanaged the funds? Where is the plurality of elders? Was he proud? If he didn't know anything about budgeting, why didn't he get help? But on the flip side of that, an ungodly elder will lead the whole church into destruction. The elders of the church are people who have been appointed that you want to share this with all others. These are the people that you want to emulate because they emulate Christ. Personally, I'd have a hard time giving to a church or any organization for that matter where you can't trust the leaders. Put the collection in the hands of the godliest people in the church. Let it be entrusted to godly men who teach and know the word prayerfully and with the power of the Holy Spirit and as they determine the direction where this money will go. You know, after saying all this, I think it really is an exciting time for our church. And the scripture shows us that this is one of the ways we ought to mature in, in our giving. Giving isn't some optional thing. It's part of our discipline and growth as a member in light of what God has done for us. Giving is a part of who we are because we are a part of God's creation, but giving is especially a part of who we are because of what Christ has done for us. You know, God made the sun. The sun gives. God made the moon. The moon gives. God made the stars. They give. God made the earth. It gives. God made the clouds. They give. God made the trees. They give. God made man. Does he give? When Jesus Christ came upon this earth, what did he give? He gave everything. He gave everything because we didn't know how to give. We were selfish. We were in pride. We were steep in sin. We only knew how to rip down others, and we rebelled against our Maker who commanded us to give because He is a giver. But because of what Jesus Christ has done for us now, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, by what the Word teaches us, you see that we are now being changed. And when we give, it's a different kind of giving. We don't give under compulsion. And I've said this before. Our landlord was surprised. He's like, how are you going to pay the rent? Do you have membership fees? And I said, no. He's like, how do you get any money? It's like, people just give. 
It didn't compute. It's like, how is this possible? I don't know how you get a continual income if you don't have membership dues. But as Christians, we are changed because of what Christ has given to us. What are we holding back then? What do you recognize is yours and God's? Isn't it all God's? And so when we give, we give freely knowing that God is the one that takes care of us. And he's the one that even gives us more to overflow. He continually challenges his people. Test me in this. You shouldn't test God. But he even says it as a hyperbole. Test me in this because God wants to show that this is how we ought to live. And this is what we, are seen, what we have been shown in the life of Jesus Christ. What did Christ hold back when he gave to us? What did he hold back? In Acts 6, when the priest saw how the church gave so freely and distributed the food among them so well, it says that they were converted. When people saw how the first century church gave, they were moved because if someone had need, they supplied it. If someone didn't have food, you know what they did? If someone didn't have food, a bunch of people would fast. They wouldn't eat. And with that money they would save, they would give it to the person who was poor and hungry. I'm not just making this up. This was written in 125 AD by a Christian philosopher by the name of Aristides. He looked at Christianity and he said this, they walk in all humility and kindness, and falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. They despise not the widow and grieve not the orphan. He that has distributes liber liberally to him that has not. If they see a stranger, they bring him under their roof and rejoice over him as if he were their own brother, for they call themselves brethren, not after the flesh, but after the spirit and in God. But it, when one of the poor passes away from the world and any of them see him, then he provides for his burial according to his ability. And if they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if it is possible that he may be delivered, they deliver him. And if there is among them a man that is poor and needy and they have not an abundance of necessaries, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with their necessary food. The church has always been a giving church. It stems from our God being a gracious and giving God. Even more than the material, he has given us new life with him, promised for eternity through his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. He has given us Jesus Christ, he is our treasure. So here are the application points that I'll just end with to sum it up. And I was thinking about this uh, right before the sermon. I went to Pastor Paul and sung. I saw them in the bathroom. I was like, pray for me, brothers. This is not an easy sermon. But I wanted to make it as easy as possible. I wanted to lay out the theological principles and the biblical principles first. So you know I'm just not talking about emotions or what I feel like the Bible says or should say. But here are the application points to make it a little more simpler that we can draw from the principles, okay? 
Number one, giving should be a planned priority. Giving should be a planned priority. Set aside an amount on a regular basis. This is part of your stewardship responsibilities. Number two, giving should be proportional to your income. That proportion is decided upon your obedience, your generosity, and sacrifice. King David would say in 2 Samuel 24, 24, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Giving should be sacrificial. C.S. Lewis would even go on to say that I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusement, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our giving does not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say it is too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our commitment to giving excludes them. And I want to add to this, giving should be a proportional to your income as a principal, 10%. As a principal, 10%. Number three, giving should be simple and straightforward. There should be no excessive emotion designed to manipulate you. Number four, there must be accountability and transparency in our giving and in the collection. Even our church's giving must have public accountability from both the giver and what has been collected. And number five, my last point is this. Jesus is our treasure. And we as believers are to give generously and freely. Let's take this time to pray. Lord, we thank you for showing us principles showing us the pattern of how we should live, ultimately showing us all of this in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And now as we obediently and humbly walk in the manner you have called us to walk, O oh God, we ask that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit that we may continue to mature as Christians that we wouldn't be stingy, which is antithetical to being a Christian, but we would be givers, for our God is a gracious giver, and we desire to be like you. Let's take this time to pray and reflect on the word that we've been given. And as the Holy Spirit convicts you, it's not compulsory, rather, that it is in joy and it is with a cheerful heart that we ought to give. Don't you see that? Ask God to change your heart and ask God how you should specifically give using the principles laid out for us in the word that you may also live a life that is glorifying to him and him alone. Let's pray.